You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and my guest this week on the podcast is Sarah Fleming. Sarah wrote a book called Fitness Without Fear, a practical guide to improving your life through movement. On the podcast recently, we've been talking a lot about our hunter-gatherer roots and how we can live better lives by being aware of how we're supposed to, to function. And in this conversation with Sarah, we talk about the physical and cognitive benefits of staying true to our evolutionary roots. And uh, Sarah has a great deal of information on this subject, and uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Sarah Fleming, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you. This is this is going to be fun because you know here recently on the podcast, it's been a lot. I've been talking a lot about how we're supposed to live. You know, like we're basically we're we're still hunter gatherers. We're still in hunter gatherer bodies, but we're not living a hunter gatherer life. And you reached out and emailed me and gave me some resources about it. And I thought, well, I don't need to read the resources. I probably should get you on here to talk about this stuff. So can you tell us what exactly is it you you do? Uh, I, I do a lot of things, but um, primarily for the last, um, gosh, 15 years, um, I was a strength uh, and conditioning coach, uh, personal trainer, uh, weightlifting coach. I pretty much coached all the things. Um, and it's funny and a little bit ironic because I was a terrible athlete. I wouldn't even call myself an athlete as a kid. I wanted to be an athlete, but um, my uh, high school gym teacher was always very afraid when I started running at high speeds, especially when I, there were hurdles involved. Um, but the one thing I did well was I um, grew up riding horses and, and working with young horses, uh, mainly, I think, because they were the ones doing the running and I didn't have to coordinate my feet and my mind at the same time. <laughs> but um, by the time I became an adult, uh, horses had kind of gone into the background and I really struggled with, I have three children, I really struggled with trying to get back to feeling good physically after um, I had my children. And I was a biochemist at the time and I as a scientist, I really want to understand how do things work. And I never understood what was going on in the gym. I'd see people, you know, killing themselves, doing all this stuff that looks really hard and <laughs> really obnoxious. And uh, I wanted to do those things, but I I could never understand, like, what is the actual process of training? How does this work? How How do you know what intensity and volume to use? How do you know how often to go? How do you know how long to work out? So I started kind of reading up on a lot of things and started designing my own workouts. And a very interesting thing happened, which was when I was, um, prior to having my children, I was doing a lot of research and I 
worked at Georgetown University in breast cancer research, and I had worked with a lot of patients there. And when I, after I'd had children and I'd stopped working in the lab, um, I found myself at the gym and I'd be doing these workouts I designed and these women would come up and ask if they could work out with me. And, and the, it was serendipitous. They were breast cancer survivors. And I've, I was like, oh, well, of course. And why? <laughs> why do you want to work out with me? And they said, because we see you getting better and you don't look like you're killing yourself. And, you know, we were kind of intimidated by some of these classes. They're just, they're too hard. And, you know, we've got these issues with, you know, that some of them, we're still on chemotherapy. Some of them had had, you know, muscle reattachments. They would get lymphedema, all these problems that happened from, you know, breast reconstruction and whatnot. Um, so I kind of took that as a sign that maybe I had previously believed, well, I'm not in any kind of good shape. <laughs> Why would anybody want to work out with me? Uh, I realized that there was a, a, a market for maybe the gentler side of it. So I went ahead and got certified as a trainer, but um, wanting to always educate myself, I also took several different certification courses like in weightlifting and track and field. And I tried to work with as many different um, genres as possible because what I was really interested in was how is the human body supposed to move? Um, that's not really something... I saw going on in the gym, I would see trainers trying to get everybody to do some sort of cookie cutter movement where everybody moved exactly the same. But like, as you know, with, with even horses, everybody's body is different. Everybody's going to move differently. Uh, you know, our balance is all different. And from what I could tell, you know, we could execute the same movement. Two people can execute the same movement. It might look wildly different, but the biomechanics are going to be the same. For example, a simple deadlift, picking up a heavy bar off the ground. Some people, you know, may have their hips further back. Some people may have their chest further forward. They might be hinging more at their hips, but they're still basically using their optimal mechanics to safely pry that bar off the ground. And that may not sound um, profound, but it's probably one of the fundamental reasons a lot of people get hurt in the gym when they start, you know, pushing weight, pushing intensity. So over the years, um, I've actually trained some really high level weightlifters and powerlifters. And the reason I've been successful at it is because I've always emphasized um, correct technique and learning over intensity at all times, whereas you'll have a lot of you know, guys are training to failure. They're they're pushing everything as hard as they can, and all that does is it trains you to fail. So if you, and again, you'll you'll see this with horses. If you push a training session to the point where everything's broken down and all these mistakes are being made, you rarely have a good outcome from that. And the next training session, you're going to have to work over it from scratch because you've pretty much destroyed the lesson. And the same thing is true with uh, the human body. So, um, I always trained a, a bunch of different kinds of people. I, I'd ha I literally have, you know, housewives who were just trying to lose some weight in the basement with my, um, you know, world champion powerlifters training together because ultimately we're kind of doing the same work. They're just, they're lifting barbells, they're lifting dumbbells. Um, 
but we're all focusing on the same things. We're focusing on correct posture, correct movement for their body, and just doing good work. And what I like to call it is it's practice. You know, we're practicing. Uh, and every once in a while, I would get someone coming to the gym door who would be terrified. Like, they were so afraid that, like, they knew that they needed to get healthy. They knew that they needed to improve their life. They knew they needed to improve their quality of life. Um, and they would always be afraid that I was going to make them work out really hard. And they were always surprised when the very first thing I do is I watch them walk in and I just ask them to stand there and I will just, with my hands, <laughs> correct their posture. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that they... Um, They've kind of developed these postural uh, habits over time where they might be slouching forward or they have a, a swayed back or their head posture has gone forward. And when I correct these things, sometimes they have some you know, uh, lateral issues. One shoulder might be lower than the other. Uh, but when I correct those things and I'm like, okay, this is what your correct posture should, should feel like. And they can see it because I'll make them stand in front of a mirror and they'll often say, well, that doesn't feel good. And it's because they've gotten so out of the habit of um, being in that correct posture that it, it's uncomfortable and actually becomes fatiguing over time, which is why we don't maintain our posture over time. Mm. Uh, so, and again, this it may sound like a very, very simple thing, but posture is the foundation of all strength. You can build a tremendous amount of strength simply resisting gravity with good posture. Until I get people with good posture, I'm not going to increase any kind of load on them. But the way that that get, improves is simply through practice. And once I make them aware of it, I'm like, throughout your day, because you're only here with me for an hour, you have 23 more hours in the day where you can practice this. And what happens is it gets better. So... When the pandemic hit, I I wanted to write this book because I felt like this was such a fundamental um, concept that if more people really understood how important it was, uh, they could really improve their quality of life without feeling like they had to go hire a trainer or join a gym or do all these other things. The main thing that you can do to keep yourself healthy and strong is to develop and practice good posture and then move with that good posture in your life. And as I was researching my book, I found, it's kind of mind-blowing, that that's actually the fundamental thing that makes us as humans healthy. Um, and again, that's going to sound a little bit crazy, but um, let's go back to what happened when we evolved away from, prime, from the other primates. So, you know, if you look at gorillas and chimpanzees, they have a really good life. They never travel more than a mile a day. They lay around eating grass and fruit and everything. They've got like really low body fat and um, really good health. They don't have cardiovascular disease. So they don't need to go get on a treadmill and run for 30 minutes a day in order to avoid diabetes, cardiovascular disease, any of those things. Uh, all they need to do is lay, <laughs> lay in the grass and eat fruit and, you know, chill out. Whereas we, um, the way we evolved, and what's different with us is that we evolved to be these long-distance endurance hunter-gatherers. And 
a whole bunch of things happened when we started doing that. Um, first of all, we decided that we needed to store more fat. So, <laughs> and we crave high calorie foods. So this is what happens with humans. We crave high calorie foods and we store a lot of fat because, you know, we got to walk nine miles a day to go get, get our food. Um, the other thing that happened is obviously we became upright uh, walking on two legs, which is a much more efficient way of moving um, than four-legged travel. And then the other thing that happened is we grew these big giant brains. And the research, um, and I'll kind of go through this a little bit more point by point, but the research has, has shown that like our brains, you know, a lot of people used to think we developed these big brains for speech. We actually developed them because as we became these upright, long-distance endurance hunter-gatherers, we developed a lot of needs. We needed to have complex social structures because that's that's a lot of hard work. If you're especially like in your other guest had said, if we're keeping our children safe, we need to, you know, have all eyes on deck. We need to be planning. We need to be navigating. Um, we need to be doing a lot of active problem solving. And so, as we you know became these long distance hunters our brains actually got bigger. And David Raiklin, he's a researcher, he used to be at University of Arizona, he's actually at University of Southern California. They actually tracked brain size in our ancestors um, compared to, and I, I'm not sure how they, they did this, but with how far they would travel, like what was their range mm. of travel in their hunter-gatherers. And they found that the further that they traveled, the bigger their brains were which I find really fascinating. So um, one of the first people I looked up when I was researching my book, because again, these beginner uh, exercisers went, once I correct their posture, I always tell them, you need to go out and walk. Walking is really good for you. And I, I think uh, maybe it was in the 80s or 90s, um, might have been in the 80s. It was probably in the 80s. I remember walking was all the craze and everybody was crazy about it. But then all of a sudden, everybody went off of it. And they're like, oh, no, you got to do all this high-intensity interval stuff. Um, walking is magic. Walking is amazing. So I found this book called In Praise of Walking by a guy by the name of Shane O'Mara. He's a neuroscientist um, at, I think it's Trinity University in Dublin. And it's a wonderful book. He's... Um, he talks all about how walking benefits the the brain, the organs, um, you know, cognitive health. Uh, one of the things that I used to think was true, I didn't think we could grow more brain cells as adults, but that's not true. And in fact, walking, just the simple act of getting upright and walking, you can actually increase the size of the hippocampus, which is the center of memory in the brain. Um, and it can actually restore cognitive function and, and memory in older adults. Uh, and it just basic low intensity movement uh, causes the release of all kinds of neurotropic uh, hormones and, and molecules that, that actually cause uh, development of nerve neural pathways and and sometimes new brain cells in the in the memory centers. So I was really <laughs> I was really kind of happy to hear that because I'd I'd had so many people you know. Walking is, is not good for you. I'm like, I think it's wonderful. It's it's what I do most. Um, Can I read us a, a quick quote from that book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's It says, 
A journey implies a destination, so many miles to be consumed, while a walk is its own measure, complete at every point along the way. There are things we will never see unless we walk to them. Walking is a mobile form of waiting. What I take with me, what I leave behind, are of less importance than what I discover along the way. That's a pretty good quote for a journey on podcast, I'd say. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, he started off the book. I um, I don't know if I actually listened to it on uh, Audible. The narrator's wonderful. And one of the things that struck me was when he talked about just evolution of regular plants and animals. And he said, you know, basically uh, trees and other non-mobile organisms don't have a brain. The only reason we have a brain is because we need to uh, sense and react to our environment. And for example, there are some animals that have life cycles where they are sessile, not moving, and then a second part of their life cycle, they may be moving and vice versa. One of which is a sea squirt, a tiny little uh, marine animal. And when they are young, they are mobile, they swim around, they have a brain. And then when they are become adults capable of breeding, they basically attach themselves to a rock and never move again. And what happens is that brain disappears. And then their main function is uh, uh, breeding. So I think it's all replaced with the uh, gonads, et cetera. But I, I just find that really interesting as that's just like a real-time sort of exaggerated example of what happens when humans sit and don't move. Right. We lose that cognitive function. We lose that interaction with our environment. Um, and then another uh, really interesting piece of research that I read when I was going through that was that they've actually found that just being outside in nature um, helps reduce impulsivity. It helps reduce addictive behaviors. It can, you know, help reverse depression and anxiety. And, this is kind of an um, abstract concept, but when you think about it, when our brains developed to navigate and we need this sort of big visual perspective, that's spatial reasoning. Uh, that spatial reasoning is also what enables us to do math and science. And so the fact that simply going out and observing nature, being out in, in a, a big sky, in a, a, a big world... Uh, gives you perspective. It's both a visual perspective, but it helps adjust your internal perspective as well, which I find kind of mind-blowing as well. <laughs> but, well there's, there's a lot to walking, I guess. Yeah, and so, you know, what we're kind of getting around to here, if you're thinking about it, is exercise... If I may go back to the, the fitness industry, the fitness industry makes us think that exercise is all about muscles and that exercise is all about appearance and appearance is all about what you can do. And I can personally tell you, I have had my butt kicked by people older and heavier and looking like way less healthy than me on, on any number of competitions, whether it's a lifting competition or a half marathon. I've been, I've had like old people just like go right by me and it's kind of embarrassing, but, but it, it's a fact. Like I've rarely see as much as we'd like to push the fact, you know, this idea that appearance, um, has something to do with function, it doesn't really. The, the real player in movement and athletic ability and um, physical fitness is the brain. 
the nervous system controls everything. And so when I'm training clients or training athletes, I always like to tell them like, what we're doing here is we're learning. We're learning to be more athletic. We're learning to be more coordinated. Um, the effect that that has on the muscular system and the cardiovascular system, that's all secondary, but it's achieved through practice, through repetition. And in order to get that practice and repetition, you have to learn. And as you get strong, like in fact, when they say 40% of strength gains in, you know, new uh, people new to exercise or children is strictly uh, neurological. It's just your brain is learning how to more efficiently uh, recruit muscle fibers and recruit them in, you know, bigger groups. And in fact, like when I'm training power lifters, we, we, most of the year we're training volume, um, just repetition at lighter weights, because we really want to learn that good form so that when we increase the weights, uh, their body already knows how to do that. Now we're just talking about recruiting uh, larger muscle fibers so we can we can make that weight heavier. But the the real work is done uh, lower lower intensities, a lot higher volume. It's just practice. And I think if we more of us kind of valued, and I mean value as a verb, um, valued the the incredible in, uh, value of of practice. We would all be a lot more accomplished, I think, it's both physically and mentally. You know, it's interesting. You're kind of talking about stuff that's in your book, but right then, I I too have just written a book. You wrote yours a while ago, but um, I wrote a book called The Principles of Training, and one of the principles is they need to know the answer before you ask the question. And that's really the principle that you're operating on with powerlifters by the time you ask them the question of can you lift this big weight, they already know the answer to it's it's already a muscle memory or whatever you want to call it. You know, the, those those neural pathways are myelinated if you want to get into that stuff um, with lightweights before you ever do the heavyweight so that when they do the heavyweight, they can maintain the correct form to lift that heavyweight. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And we we say the same thing about competition, whether you're, you know, playing soccer or, you know, doing an obstacle course race or whatnot, because you've practiced, if you practice ahead of time and you're prepared, there there are no surprises. You've done this before. You're not going to be um, met with something you haven't done before. And if your body has done it all before, you're going to really reduce the risk of injuring yourself or, uh, you know, just having a bad day. So... Yeah, yeah, as the Navy SEALs say, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your preparation. Or I had <laughs> exactly. I had um I had Ty Murray on the podcast here a month or so ago. So Ty is the was the greatest rodeo athlete of all time. And um you know, they called him the king of the cowboys. And he one of the things he did was ride bulls for a long time, and you know, he calls that the scariest job on the planet. Uh, <laughs> and he's and he said the reason he could be so confident is because he was confident in his preparation. He knew there was nothing he wasn't prepared for. It wasn't, you know, it's just like that Navy SEAL saying, which is actually the Navy SEAL saying is not a Navy SEAL saying. It was actually written by a Greek philosopher named Archilochus in like 800 BC or something. But it, it was, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your preparation. So imagine with the powerlifting 
the level of your preparation is how my, how many repetitions you've done at low weights till you basically can't do it wrong. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, without that, you, you know, if you don't have that consistency of movement, you know, your, your potential for mistake is, is so much higher. And so it, it's a hard thing to break people's minds into because a lot of the folks that come to me who want to do, you know, powerlifting, weightlifting, Highland Games, uh, they just want to go all out. And I have to remind them, like, even if you are already strong, your body's not used to doing this particular movement. And one of the reasons people get injured is because even though muscles, your nervous system and your muscles can adapt re- relatively quickly, your connective tissue takes a lot longer. And so that's like a lot of the damage that people will do to themselves when they jump into a program, even if it's just running, if they're increasing volume and intensity too quickly uh, before their body is ready for it, uh, you're going to have injury and then, and then you're going to end up having to quit and not do, you know, not continue with your, with your fitness journey. So I always tell people, we need to go slow out of the gate. And if you can take your time and um, emphasize your recovery and, you know, prioritize those things, you're going to be in the game a lot longer and you're going to get a lot stronger and a lot more fit than you ever imagined. Uh, that's, that's a hard pill for a lot of folks to swallow because I think a lot of people want to want to get in there and start doing things, you know, as quickly as possible. But patience and practice, I think, are just probably the most important thing. Um, I wanted to kind of switch gears and go a little bit more into why lower intensity work is so effective with people. And, you know, I was talking again about posture and we were talking about how, you know, there was another researcher at Duke University, um, Herman Ponser, and he's done a lot of work with the Hasda um, in West Africa. It's a hunter-gatherer tribe who's very graciously allowed his team to come in and, like, they put activity trackers on them, they let measure their body fat, they take their blood... And these people are very, very healthy. They're, they don't have cardiovascular disease. They don't have diabetes. Um, but there were some really surprising findings from his work with them. And the first one was that even though they are more active than us, they still spend about 10 hours a day resting. So maybe like 85 to 115 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity, you know, hunting, gathering, you know, whatever. But the majority of their time is spent what we would call in resting postures. Uh, the other really surprising thing is that he found that they their daily calorie requirements are about the same as us in couch potato land <laughs> and, uh, you know, here. And it's because there's a, an interesting thing that happens. When um, we are very good at being efficient at using calories. So the more fit you are, it, you don't, there's not like this rising bar of, well, I can eat 10,000 calories a day. It, it's going to level off at a certain point and your body just gets a lot more efficient at using energy. It's when, well, for example, with very unfit people, they mostly use sugar pathways for energy. Whereas as you get more fit and your cells um, develop more mitochondria and you get more capillarization and you're going to be able to rely more on fat for energy. And fat has way more calories per gram. Uh, but it even when you have, you know, uh, an overweight person who may not get any exercise, uh, the majority of the calories that we burn is not from exercise. It's from um, Met our metabolism and just basic body maintenance. And 
the more unhealthy we are, the more of those calories have to be used to basically try and keep us healthy. So in the broad spectrum of, um, you know, very healthy hunter-gatherer and, you know, Westerner with, you know, the diseases of inactivity, you're still burning about the same number of calories. And so what they've kind of come around to see is that it is inactivity, which is the biggest uh, cause of the Western diseases, the cardiovascular disease, the diabetes, all that stuff. And this is actually backed up if you take a look at what happens in, you know, in hospitals when a patient is on bed rest. Um, no matter their weight, they get the same stuff. They get osteoporosis, sarcopenia, that's muscle loss. They get high blood pressure. They start to develop cardiovascular disease. And you could say, well, those people are unhealthy, which is why they're on bed rest. Um, the same thing happens to astronauts in outer space. And it's all because they are no longer resisting gravity. So they don't have that minor muscle activation going on all the time. And, you know, obviously astronauts tend to be very physically fit people. So once they get back down to Earth, their health returns rather quickly. Um, they, it usually takes them a while to get used to gravity again, but they can reverse that pretty quickly. But with the bed rest patients, um, the main thing they do is just get them up walking. And a really interesting paper I read was that the patients who are too frail to walk, what they'll do is they'll put them on a vibration plate. And a vibration plate, it's just if, exactly what it sounds like. It's a plate that just vibrates. And if you've ever stood on one, like you have to kind of brace and engage your muscles just to maintain your balance. And that little amount of muscle activation just from bracing and engaging your muscles so you don't fall off is enough to start reversing those diseases. Really? Yeah. We have one we have one for the horses that I sometimes will stand on. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I think it's remarkable because um and then because when you look back, I I mentioned that the Hazda spend ten hours a day out of their rest, you know, resting. The difference between their rest and our rest is that they are in what we call active postures most of the day. They're kneeling, they're squatting. Um, it's not like they're laying down on the ground and they're getting up and changing position every 15 to 20 minutes. So, you know, how does that translate to what we have here? Well, we invented chairs a while ago. And unfortunately, I would say that the biggest issue I see when I'm training people, the weaknesses that, that they have is now, you know, a lot of people's jobs involve just sitting in a chair at a computer and we tend to not sit actively. We tend to you know, slouch, let the chair hold us up. And that is actually the main cause or can be the main cause of a lot of this, you know, disease development. Because another thing that's very interesting is you can have people who go to the gym and work out really hard for an hour in the morning, but then they go sit in their office chair all day and they're going to have just almost as high a risk of disease as the person that's not exercising at all. So, it seems, based on the the data they gathered from the the hunter gatherers and from you know normal Americans with chair jobs, um, that the more important thing uh, for our general health is that we are 
using activated muscle, active posture throughout the day, getting up and moving around frequently. It doesn't have to be super intense. It doesn't have to be, you know, lifting heavy weights. It's just a matter of, you know, an awareness and paying attention. And then I also wanted to, you know, one of the other things I I got into, I don't know if you had a chance to look at my book, but chapter two, uh, no pain, no gain. Um, There's a a researcher, he works at, he's in uh, Norway, but he's from Texas originally. He actually has a really great TED Talk, um, which I, I just find really interesting. His name is Steven Seiler, and he's been working with athletes for oh, over 20 years now. And one of the things that he was researching was when he first moved to Norway, he noticed that the athletes there did not train the same way as American athletes. And in America, we kind of have this no pain, no gain, you know, pain is, you know, weakness leaving your body, all these slogans like that. Um, I will interject here and say that, you know, when I first started training people, CrossFit was all the rage. And I actually worked in a CrossFit gym. I I saw so many injuries from people just hurling themselves into these high-intensity workouts. And I actually formed a group with some fellow coaches, and we actually went to these CrossFit gyms. Uh, they would hire us to come in and teach a seminar on how to do the do that kind of training more safely. And, and we were like, you need to build the foundation. You need to correct the movement. You know, every workout should not be a test. Like, let's train them so that they are capable of doing this harder work. And Steven Seiler's research, what he ended up figuring out was when they went back and literally reviewed the training logs of thousands of Olympic athletes over decades. And the high-intensity interval training, I think, became kind of a thing as early as the 70s. And for a while, a lot of these athletes were, they switched from just long, steady distance training, and we're talking about the endurance athletes, cross-country skiers, cyclists, runners, whatever. Um, When they switched from doing the majority long, slow distance training, added in some high-intensity interval training, they did see some improvements. So some went all the way in and made the majority of their training these sort of high-intensity intervals. And what they found was when more than 20% of your training was of the high intensity variety, they, their performance started going down. They know mm. they were no longer successful. Um, and it was because, you know, that, that long steady distance training is what, you know, builds up that connective tissue strength, the bone strength, uh, the muscle strength, the cardiovascular fitness. Whereas that high intensity work is, you know, going to cause both, damage and also fatigue. And when we are fatigued, you know, going back to that idea of failure, uh, you're, you're learning bad habits. So if your nervous system is now learning how to do things in a fatigued state, it's not learning how to do things correctly. So that's actually a, a problem. And the majority of people at the time when I was in the gym, when they were doing those really intense CrossFit workouts, they'd they'd start to lose form very quickly. And they never got any better at their technique because it was always breaking down and it never got to the point where they could practice, you know, at a normal pace. And when, when the quality of the work finished, they would keep going 
instead of stopping there and letting the quality stand for that day. Right. And again, I, you know, that was when I was working with horses back in, in high school. We always, we always said, end on a good note. Like if the horse was acting up or, you know, you were tired or we just weren't getting the lesson, let's finish on something good and then move on because we didn't want to reinforce that bad habit or that bad feeling. You know, it seems like um, getting the basics really, really good is, is the key to almost everything you do. And, and the thing I think that stops us from getting the basics good is because they don't seem like you're doing anything. You know, like, this is not the thing I want to do. I want to do that stuff. You know, people like, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, people that have problems with their horses, like, when I'm out trail riding, you want to, you know, this happens and this happens. It's like, well, let's go back to the groundwork. And like, no, but I don't want to do groundwork. I want to be, I want to trail ride. Or, you know, there's a really good book. I'm not sure if you've read it called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Have you ever read that? No. It is, it's, it's about talents and it's about how you develop, how talent is developed. And he said, talent is not an innate thing that you're born with. Talent is something you develop. And he goes around to places in the world that are what he calls talent hotbeds. So he goes to a um, South Korean women's golf academy. He goes to a Russian tennis gym. He goes to a Brazilian soccer place. And these places, <laughs> these places pour out more world-class athletes in that discipline than any other one place on the planet. And he, he looks at what are the common denominators? What are they all doing the same? And the thing they're all doing the same is they slow it down. When you go to the Russian tennis gym, you don't get to hit a ball for a month. You have to learn how to yeah. hold the racket. Um, yeah. It goes to a, a, a um, violin studio in Japan, I think, and for the first month or two you don't even get a violin. You get to hold a cardboard tube and a stick. And I think the reason they do that is because if you have the bow and the violin – you'll be tempted to try to get it to make a noise. You try to get to the, the end point, whereas when you've got a cardboard tube and a stick, you're not worried about the noise. You're worried about the form. You get to, it, it, takes that, it takes that carrot, that dangling carrot of making a noise that sounds like a violin concerto, it takes that out of the equation. It's a, and it's kind of the same thing with the Russian tennis gym. Like if there's no ball to hit, there's no reason to try to hit the ball to a certain spot or at a certain speed or whatever. And it's, it's, I think it's really all about being able to slow things down and be present with what you're doing with, you know, I talk a lot about um, something called karma yoga. So karma yoga is one of the most spiritual of the ancient Hindu practices. And karma yoga is focusing on a task with no thought as to the outcome of that task, whether it is, holding a tennis racket because you want to hit the ball or holding the violin because you want to make a noise or lifting a weight because you want to lift a heavy weight. You've got to be able to put that, the goal out of your mind and just do the, the work that's in, in front of you. And I think that's the, it's hard for everybody. And I, I preach it so much with the, with the horsey stuff. But if I take up something new, damn it, I don't want to practice the little stuff. I want to do the thing, you know, and I think you have yeah. to, I think you have to do the thing and suck at it for a while until you finally decide if this is the thing you really want to do, then you have to do it the right way. I don't think anybody really starts out anything following someone like you as instructions. Like, you know, you, you they probably, I don't know with, with you, but like with the horses, a lot of times people end up with me because nothing else worked. 
Like I did yeah. all the other stuff and it didn't work. It's like finally I'm prepared to do the work. And I'm, I'm sure yeah. therapists get it, you get it. I mean, everybody would get it. Well, there's a concept, you know, um, there's a that I stressed a lot and I actually learned this from uh, another guy that I was um, working with when I was writing my book. He was writing a book, a brilliant man. He, um, he was actually a physician and became a business consultant and he was writing about how business has changed after COVID. And one of the things that he really stressed, and I, I found this really profound, was value as a verb. And he said, you know, the thing that we need to do is value, instead of being cogs in the wheel, we need to value all, in a corporation, we need to value all the, the working parts. And you know, for everybody from the janitor to, you know, the secretary, if we don't value them, um, they're, they're not going to do the kind of work that's actually going to make us a, a better organism. He's, you know, you like to think about the, the corporation as, as an organism instead. And I really do think that we've kind of, because everybody can learn how to do something on, everybody thinks you can watch a TikTok video and, and learn how to do something these days. And, and you're right. Like I was the same way when I first wanted to learn how to lift barbells, I'd, I wanted to lift all the heavyweight and I learned the hard way by doing too much too soon. And so I always try to teach people, you know, the lessons that I learned from being a scientist, which is, you know, your biggest um, tool, your best tool you have is your ability to observe. And in order to observe, you also need to record um, what you're observing. So for example, when, I have the the very unfit people come into my gym, and I, what I, I like I said, I teach them posture, but then I teach them how to move correctly with that posture. And the very first thing I do is I teach them how to squat correctly. And I'm like, every time you get out of a chair now, because you know you'll teach someone how to squat correctly, and then they'll go home and just fall back into their chair, and then you know swing their arms forward to get back up. And I'm like, no, every time you get in and out of a chair from now on, you're you're going to be using this particular uh, movement. And same with deadlifting. Every time you pick something up off the ground, I want you to think about this setup. How are you going to deadlift this bag of mulch off the ground and put it in the back of your car? And the they get so excited because they'll have like a, a weekend where they're doing um, yard work and they're like, I unloaded 30 bags of mulch. <laughs> and, you know, they're just so... But it's a really good marker for them to see, wow, this actually did improve things. So I think it's good to, you know, I, I used to have to point that stuff out to them. Um, but when they can really value, like, we're just doing this simple, not too heavy work in the gym, but all of a sudden you're able to do all these other things that you had given up on or didn't think you could do. And that's a hard thing to teach unless you are, you know, actively with people. Uh, but it's one of the reasons why whenever I do anything new now, I hire a coach because I know that I am too myopic. I'm too, even if I know the fundamentals, like for example, I'm trying to get um, my horse back into under saddle. I hired a coach because I haven't done this in a long time and I don't want to screw him up. Um, and I don't trust, I. plus I was like in sort of a protective mode with him when I got him and it's not easy to train a horse when you're in mama bear mode, like, cause I always want to, I always want to be too easy on him. So I, I need, I need a clear set of eyes to help me kind of get through that. And so I always recommend to people, like, even if you think you know what you're doing, get, get someone else to help you. You need a non-biased uh, 
guide to help you navigate this because you are going to see that prize that you want to get and you need someone to rein you in and say, no, not yet. Yeah, or, or, or tell you the because the, the, the thing that you need to do to get to that prize or that goal you want to achieve a lot of times doesn't look anything like what you think it would look like. I remember years ago I took a wakeboarding lesson from a professional wakeboarder and I water skied a lot when I was a kid, but I'd never really wakeboarded. And so, I, you know, I could get up on the wakeboard and whatever, but I wanted to jump the wake. I wanted to go from one side and jump the wake. And I was trying, and it doesn't matter how hard I try, I couldn't get any air out of it. And then this guy said, okay, what I want you to do is go out that side and then turn your head. So I was on the, the right-hand side of the, the wake, you know. He said, I want you to turn your head and look to the left and pull both your hands, pull the handle down towards your right hip. I'm like, yeah, and then do I turn? He goes, no, 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 that's all you got to do. Just look over there and pull. So I go along behind this boat. I look over there. I pull the handle down to my hip, and I fly and hit that weight going a million miles an hour, and I think I kind of ate shit. But the thing was, I was <laughs> trying to make the jump happen. He just right. gave me the thing that would cause the jump to happen, and guess what? It was nothing like what I thought, you know, it was nothing like what I thought would you'd have to do to cause that thing to happen. And I, you know, I get to, I'm lucky enough, I get to help people with their horses with that sort of thing. And you get to help people with their, you know, with their bodies and their form. You know, it's interesting you are talking about when you first have someone, you have them come, you watch them come in the door and watch them walk and whatever. I, uh, oh, probably 10 years ago now, I had a bit of a horsey accident and herniated a disc in my back. And I went to this guy who was a holistic sports medicine guy. And uh, so I, I went in there and he stripped me off to my underwear and videoed me walking across the gym. He said, I want you to walk from there to there and then back to there. And I walked towards the camera and away from the camera. Then he put me in front of a, a board on the wall that had like squares on it. And he hung a plumb line in front of my nose and then took pictures of me. Um, and then we went over the computer and had a look, and he said, "This is, this is why you herniated the disc because you are not even. You are so crooked; it's not funny." He had me stand on two bathroom scales at the same oh, yeah. time, and I carried twenty five pounds on more on one foot than on the other foot. It was, it was really an eye opener, yeah. not knowing that you're that crooked. I tell you what, the 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 most eye opening thing he did was he had me get on my hands and knees on the floor, and he said, I want you to pick up your left hand and your right knee, which I did. I lent my hips to the left to do that, you know. Then he walked around beside me and he put his knee up against my left hip and he said, I want you to pick up your left hand and your right knee. And when I could not lean my hips to the left, I couldn't pick my hand up off the floor. It was the most helpless feeling I've ever like I'm looking at my hand. Imagine, you know, you guys listening. Imagine you're, you're on your hands and knees. So your hand is not very far from your face and you're looking at that hand and you're trying to pick it up off the floor and it will not leave the floor. So I was, I was 40, I'm 55 now. I was probably 45 years old and didn't know how to engage my core. Yeah. And it's, that's the thing that we just get out of practice with. And again, it's, you know, when I tell people how to, Good posture, you know, take, take take the top of your head and push it towards the, the, the ceiling and shoulders back, you know, pull your belly button in, tuck your hips forward. And 
you know, I'm giving these verbal instructions and people are looking at me like I'm crazy because then I'd have to like actually push them into position. Right. Um, but yeah, I've, and the, the thing that's great about it though, is that again, it's, it's mostly your nervous system that's in charge of that. So it can, even though it has unlearned to be engaged, it can easily learn to be re-engaged. I had a, a weightlifter, she, her squat wasn't going up. She was only squatting like 220, which is 220 pounds. Um, and I felt that at her level of training, it should have been higher. And I had a brain, uh, I had all of a sudden had this idea. And so I put just the bar on her back and I had her do what's called a split squat. So it's kind of like a lunge. You have one foot out in front of you, one behind you. And uh, we were able to get her up to 95 pounds on the right leg, switched over to the other one. She went down with just the bar on her back, 45 pounds, couldn't get out of the bottom of it. So, couldn't get up. Yeah, she was not using that side of her hips. And so all I did was for eight weeks, I had her warm up with split squats, um, same amount of weight, just a lot of volume. And within that eight weeks, we added 50 pounds to her squat. Now, that's a big jump in strength, especially in an advanced lifter. So it wasn't actually a big increase in strength. It was, it was getting that left hip to actually do its, do its part of the work. And just practicing, you know, getting that left glute to wake up and, and, and join in the fun, it changed everything. And so it's the same with, you know, posture. Um, and again, like these are just the simple things is, you know, I've had people come in with like literally that kyphotic upper back that's all curved down and, you know, maybe their heads forward. I actually had a, a young girl, she was 14. She had the biggest growth spurt I think I've ever seen. She'd grown like a foot in a year. And so when she came in, like her head was typically you want to see the, your ear hole in line with your shoulder. Hers was about four inches in front. And now my chiropractor will tell you that every inch forward your head is puts an additional 10 pounds of stress on your spine, on your neck. And she was in, she was in a lot of pain and she had this really bad upper curved back and all we did was correct her posture, and then I just had her start lifting. Um, I had her deadlift, because in a deadlift, you maintain that nice, straight spinal posture. And within six months, she perfectly straight, could stand up tall, looked, looked wonderful, wasn't having any more pain. Um, so it, it is like what Herman Ponser kind of says in his uh, article, it's in the 2018 um, Scientific American, it's called Evolve to Exercise. But the thing that you really want to think about, exercise is medicine. And that it, it is fundamentally medicine. Uh, it is the fundamental way we, we stave off disease. And when we think about the exercise that is medicine, I, I had a yoga teacher tell me that one time, yoga is medicine. And, and I finally, you know, kind of realized that. It's that low intensity, just, you know, constant engagement of the muscle. We're paying attention. We're not just flopping around like a dead fish. That is what is the absolute key to our health and, you know, what we evolved to need. Because when we don't do it, you know, we lose that cognitive function, we lose our health. And when we do it, our abilities I, I, I just increase amazingly. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Because the, the exercise 
increases the cognitive function, but you talked about before about picking up the top of your head. I used to pronate really badly. For you guys that don't know what pronating is, it's when you roll your, ankle, you roll your ankles. I used to have, like wearing boots, like cowboy boots, the, the side of the boot would be on the ground because I'd fall off the, fall off the heels. And I, I pronated all my life. Yeah. And I actually think I pronated because I was in a state of freeze or flop and I was in my head a lot. And it was funny, I started doing yoga. This is 20 years. And I started being aware of my posture and I started being aware of lifting up the crown of my head as I moved from place to place. And the pronating went away and I don't even think about it anymore, but I no longer pronate. My boots no longer fall over. And I was really, really, um, really bad at it. But I was also, and still am a bit, in my head a lot. And I think the the thing I had to do to fix the pronating was be in my body more. Like, so be consciously aware of my body. So my head is thinking about my body, not my head is thinking about my head. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I see a lot in people, and I'm not right, I'm not really sure. I'm going to make some educated guesses here. But what I see a lot is that we tend to move with momentum whenever possible. Um, my mother went through a phase where she had her hips replaced and she had gotten into this habit of when she would walk, it was almost like she was just falling forward instead of driving from behind. She was almost just kind of falling forward. And again, to compare it to a horse, think about one that's just sort of heavy on the forehand, or if the rider isn't holding up the bit, they just drop in the front and that's usually from a lack of engagement of the hips. It's because they're, they're just kind of tipping forward and relying on, on gravity. And I'm not sure exactly how that happens, but I do think it has a lot to do with us wearing shoes and a lot to do with us sitting. Like, I mean, we start sitting at desks when we're in the first grade. And I think it's just, you know, so when we aren't actively engaged, you know, the, the things that actually happen in the body is the muscles in the back, from the back of your head down, they tend to get flaccid, um, and that, that's what causes that rounding. But not only that, the abdominal muscles actually get tight and pull you down. So uh, like the psoas muscle and the rectus abdominis, they, they tend to pull us down and forward. And if you think about, think about what an old man looks like that has that hunched over posture, he's, he's got no butt because you know, he's just basically shaped like a C and everything's tight up front. And at that point, when I see people in that condition, they typically are not moving well at all, but that started decades ago. And the, there's, I read an article many years ago, and I thought it was very interesting, and they were talking about J-shaped spines as opposed to S-shaped spines. And what they were talking about was, we typically describe our spine as being an S-shape, where the top of our neck kind of curves in a little bit, whereas in indigenous cultures, they have what's called a J-shaped spine where the neck is very straight. And it's, and, you know, when I was reading about, you know, Terman Ponser's work with the Hasda, you know, children are basically carried until they can walk. And then they are out with their mothers collecting berries and tubers and helping carry things back to the, um, you know, where their camp or whatever. And um, so they are on their feet walking miles and miles a day from the time they are probably two years old. And we just don't have that. 
Um, we just don't have that in the, in the Western world. And I have to think that there's got to be some sort of deficiency f- starting from when we're very young and how we move um, that kind of contributes to this these things that become much more apparent later in life. Like they may not be a super big deal, but uh, another thing that I typically tell people to do who are having postural issues is when you're at home, walk as, walk around barefoot as much as possible because the more your feet can contact and react to the ground, it's, it's going to cause a chain reaction up your body and enable you to kind of be more aware. Whereas when we're wearing shoes, we're kind of numb to everything and we, we don't pay as much attention. You know, I'm listening to a book right now called Being a Human, Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness by a guy named Charles Foster. And he starts out the book saying that I consume more sugar in a year, uh, in a day than, or in a sitting than hunter-gatherers consumed in a year. And he said, I walk in a year what hunter-gatherers would walk in a day. And then he goes on lists you know, I do this, that hunter-gatherers would do this, and I do this, and, you know, and it went on and on and on. And it's a, I'm not very far into it, but it's a fascinating book. It's about being a human. It's about how we are supposed to work. And you were talking about the hunter-gatherers a minute ago and how the mothers carry the children and then the children, are, you know, once they can walk, they're doing all the walking on their own. And I was reading a book recently and it was talking about, um, it was actually a book about, trauma and stuff but it was talking about in a study these guys were doing on proteins in children and they studied this they was taking studies of kids all over the world but there was these kids in uganda who were off the charts in a good way as far as these proteins and the, what they realized is those children when they're infants are never put down some someone is always carrying them close to their body and so that's one of the that's one of the needs we evolved to have was not get rolled around in a stroller or whatever but be close to and not go to daycare but be you know be up against someone's body whether it's the mother or the grandmother or someone else in the in the village but yeah these kids these kids protein levels was off the chart so you know it's I think there's a lot that goes into why we don't, we're not functioning the way we really should function from what you're into, mm-hmm. all the movement sort of stuff. But there's also, you know, social parts of it too, I think. And I think it all adds up to us not functioning very well, like the way we're supposed to. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I really see what we've come to see with you know, all the social media and the screens with younger kids. I've got three teenagers and, you know, there's a lot of mental health issues. And I personally think it's because they, one, they're not interacting with each other. We, you know, we evolved to have these very complex social interactions and I, you just can't do that on Snapchat, you know, even though you might be texting your friends and, and also just lifting your head up and getting outside and, and looking around you. Uh, like we said, that's, that's great for good mental health and everything else. And I, you know, there's, there's even more aspects to it that I, I think are really interesting. Uh, have you ever listened to Dan Huberman's podcast? He's a um, neurologist. Yeah, okay. The well, did you, yeah. So the one that he, he did a two ser- two episode series on um, the gut biome. And 
how, and essentially, you know, most of our serotonin is created in the gut. And so it, it really has a lot to do with our mental health and having a healthy gut biome is really important. And the way you feed your gut biome is with fiber. And again, these hunter-gatherer societies are, you know, we're lucky if we get 30 grams of fiber a day, they're getting over 100. You know, so, I, you know, we wonder if, does that have something to do with their good mental health, you know, and, oh. and all these other things is because they have a, they are a more complete symbiotic system than we are because we've, we just aren't, you know, and I find yeah, that, no, I find definitely. that very interesting. Definitely. You know, the whole, the whole gut, heart, head, super highway thing, you know, you, you've got a brain in your heart and you've basically got a brain in your heart and a brain in your gut and it's all supposed to talk to each other. And I, quite possibly the, the diet we have um, stops it from talking to each other, but there's, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But I, I do think we definitely don't work the way we're supposed to No, supposed and to I actually... Uh, there's, I didn't really, I covered diet in my book, like in an appendix, cause I didn't want to make it about, I didn't want to make it about fat loss. I, I want I really wanted to focus on the, the health, um, benefits of exercise, but, um, there's a lot of research that's been done on flavors and artificial flavors and how, um, using artificial flavors can actually trick your digestive system into thinking that you're getting certain nutrients when you're not. There were some experiments done um, with sheep where they would take straw, you know, no, hardly any um, nu nutrition in it, and they would flavor it with different flavors that one of which would indicate that it was, it was something that did have some sort of nutritional content. And because it tasted like that, they would gorge themselves on this one thing. Uh, the, there's a book, I forget the author's name, it's called The Dorito Effect, and it's how by using artificial flavors, we've actually made n less nutritious food palatable and desirable. And so we tend to eat a lot of things that just don't deliver the nutrients that we actually need to be healthy and also leaves us craving more because we're not getting it. You know, if you think about it, you know, if I, I think I'm eating, um, you know, a, something that has calcium in it because it tastes like cheese, but it's actually Doritos, I'm going to keep eating Doritos because my body wants calcium and it thinks that the Doritos taste like calcium. <laughs> and, and that's, that's okay, kind of simplified. So, okay, and let's get down to it. What's Doritos made from? Corn. <laughs> And and what what can we produce large amounts of and make lots of profit on? Yeah, corn. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so it's it's um definitely there's a lot of problems that I think you know if we pay more attention again it's I think observation and pay attention. One of the things I do tell my clients if they want to lose weight or if they have a body composition goal, put on more muscle. The first thing I tell them to do is okay, write down everything you're eating. For a week and don't even show it to me just write it down and as best as you can tell calculate how much protein you're getting and how much sugar and we'll start there i tell them not to show it to me because if they they're going to show it to me most of the time they they edit they it yeah, yeah or they or they eat differently for that week and i'm like right. we want we want an actual snapshot of not only what you're eating but when you're eating because you know what this is going to tell you is well hey i'm 
I'm usually really hungry in the afternoon or in the morning, I really crave salty foods. And the more you can kind of observe about yourself, the more capable you'll be of changing those behaviors if they need changing. Uh, one of the, the things that a lot of people do, uh, a lot of women that are trying to lose weight, and I'm not trying to pick on women who are trying, trying to lose weight, but this is just a common theme, they won't eat breakfast or they'll eat something very light or just have coffee but then they'll end up snacking middle of the morning because they're hungry. And then they try to eat a healthy lunch, which isn't much. They'll have like a salad. But then they're hungry again. They'll start snacking in the afternoon. So by the time they go to eat their healthy dinner, they feel guilty for having snacked all day. And now they're just going to eat a teeny tiny portion. But they're still hungry. So they'll eat before bed. And so I always tell them like, you need to eat the majority of your calories around the times that you are most active in the day. And when you're coming to work out with me in the gym, you should eat a good amount before, not enough, not so much that you're going to get sick. But then, you know, afterwards, your body needs all those nutrients to replenish and rebuild and repair. Eat then, and you, you will find that you're more satisfied later in the day. And if I can convince them to do it, they usually find that that's, that's true. Uh, it's, it's a hard... It's a hard sell, though. It's a hard sell. You know, you said at the start of that, I don't want to pick on women losing weight. I think, I think um, especially women in our society, it's really hard. Like if you're in the grocery store and you – if you're in the grocery store and you see a magazine that's like a – some sort of a cookbook magazine or whatever, somewhere on the cover of that, there will be a guilt-free recipe, which means, and usually it's some sort of a chemical shitstorm, but, yeah. but, but the, the thing about it is if you eat real food, you'd should feel guilty. Yes. You, you know what I yeah. mean? And, I mean, that is a, that is a huge weight I don't mean weight as in weight loss, but that's a huge weight to put on someone mentally to think if you eat this, you should feel bad about it. And now it becomes a, you know, weight loss becomes a mental health problem in, in that situation, you know, because I, I think I'm a big believer in your thoughts create reality. And if you eat something and you think it's bad for you, I think you will. Yeah you will digest it as if it's bad for you. It could be good for you. I don't know, but I, I, I just really, you know, I, I cringe when I see that guilt-free something recipe because it, it, it really reiterates that you should feel guilty if you eat a certain thing. Yeah, and I agree. I, I tell people, have a big bowl of ice cream in the afternoon if you're hungry because, you know what, it's, it's, you're not going to get fat from having a serving of ice cream and it's got calcium in it. It's good for you. And one of the other things I tell people is, you know, stop thinking that you have to eat breakfast foods for breakfast. And, you know, if you want to have a steak for breakfast, go ahead, eat, eat a big plate of steak and asparagus or whatever. But, you know, think about what your body needs at the time and pie is good. You know, don't eat the whole pie, but we need to normalize eating good food that we, like you said, that we don't feel guilty about because when you feel guilty about it, uh, you know how sometimes we, 
we will sometimes try to de- deceive our own selves when we're doing things where we don't feel like we should be doing. So that's why, you know, I'll cut myself a very thin sliver of pie. I'm only having this, but I take the fork and I scoop out a little bit more and sneak that into my mouth before I take my plate away. And, you know, sometimes I feel like just cut yourself a big piece of pie and and just eat what you want and then walk away. Don't worry about it, (laughs) you know. And I also see people who think that they need to pay penance of some sort by you know, they ate a whole bunch of food that they thought was bad, so they think they have to go to the gym and sweat it off. And I try to tell them, like, you're not you're not going to be able to burn, you know, 3,000 calories, and it, it doesn't actually matter. Just keep moving, keep doing what you're doing. Like, little blips in the road are not going to derail you. I mean, obviously, if you have an, an issue with overeating, that, you know, that obviously that's something that you might need to get help with, but... Yeah, no, demonizing normal food cravings and normal things that we should be able to enjoy in our lives, I think is just, it, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it it's, it's we, becomes a mental health thing. Like, you know, you, yeah. you, start to tell, you start to tell yourself bad things about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a lot yeah. of that negative self-talk. Oh, you, you shouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, and I, I think that's probably a bigger deal than anything else. Oh, yeah, because when people start characterizing things as bad, they start hiding it from others and hiding it from even themselves whenever mm. possible. And, you know, the another one of the things that I have to work through with people new to the gym and new to, you know, eating better is, like, again, after I have them keep that food log for a week, I ask them, okay, how much protein were you getting every day? And then, because that's a, the most important thing, I think, is a lot of people don't don't get enough protein um, and if we focus on, you know, le- adding more lean protein to the diet, you're one, you're going to be more satiated and two, you're not going to have room for the other things that aren't, you know, good for you. And so we start from there and, you know, most of the time, you know, I tell people like you need to be getting a minimum of 80 grams of protein a day. A hundred is probably better. If you're a man, probably 120 to, you know, hundred to 120. Uh, but you know, then we say, let's try that one change and see how that works. And we'll go from there. Because again, when people come into the gym and they want to get in shape, they want to do all the hard and fast workouts. And the same is true with diet. They want to come in and completely change their diet. And that's not sustainable. You know, one of the reasons I really don't like people doing like keto diets or those other things is because they're so extreme. They're hard to accommodate. And if it's hard to accommodate, you're not going to do it. And then nine times out of 10, if you're only doing it halfway, you're, it's, it's just not going to work. Right. And it's not you know, sustainable. Yeah. I love, the, I love the thing that you give them to do is the first thing I want you to do is write down everything you eat and don't show it to me. Because like you said, if they've got to show it to you, they'll either cheat on it and, and not write down everything they eat or they will change what they eat so you're not getting a true reading of it. And, but I, I think there's another part of that too is when they do that, doesn't, don't you think it provides them an awareness of actually what they're eating because they might not be aware of what they're eating? Like, so step one is be, like being aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the, you know, in the lab, uh, 
anytime we're doing an experiment, it's like the very first thing we do is like we need to understand what we're working with. And if we're trying to improve, for example, a, an assay where we're measuring something, um, you need to understand how it works and what you're using in it because anything you change, you, you need to understand first of all, what am I going to change first and what effect is that going to have on the, on the reaction? And so I think if you try to make changes when you don't even understand where you are or what you're currently doing, it's not going to work, you know? <laughs> so so I, get, I get lots of questions on my Facebook group every day. I always do this, what should I do? And everybody wants to answer with what you should do. I never answer with what you should do. I ask clarifying questions because until you can figure out what the actual problem is and what's causing the problem, there's no reason to even jump to conclusions about how to solve the thing. First, you want to know why. You know, I, I need to know all the details. And, yeah, it's amazing the conclusions people can jump to about, you know, if a horse is doing a certain thing, there's all these conclusions you can jump to as to how to fix it but without figuring out why it's happening in the first place. I'm kind of scientific that way. Like I don't, I don't want to yeah. come up with the answer until I figure out what the problem is. No, it's absolutely right. We often, you know, the same thing is true with training. Like I'll see people posting a video of like a lift, you know, a barbell lift, and you'll have all these amateurs jump on and be like, oh, you need to straighten your back and get your hips back and lift your head up. And it's like, why don't we start with the one thing that he needs to do, which is, you know, uh, just – push his hips back a little bit and let's see how that works. And usually there's only one big thing that you need to change. And if you change that, everything else will fall into place, but you have to be able to identify what that one thing is. And you can't do that if you, A, don't understand the system and B, don't, you know, really know how to accurately observe. And you're right. I think, um, and it's the same with, you know, horses and, People, I was actually talking with my trainer today because she was, uh, she was lunging uh, my horse, and he was, he was a little stiff from yesterday because he's kind of out of shape. Um, so she was trying to get him to move up from his hindquarters, and you know, once he could engage his hips a little bit better, he, uh, you know, started to move more easily. It looked better, and I remember back when I was working with horses again in like high school and college, and. That was when um, the warm bloods had come on the scene and everybody was trying to get these warm bloods to work in this sort of head, you know, the nice arched neck posture. And what I saw happen a lot is the training aids, you know, the like the double reins that would loop down and attach to the girth um, that were supposed to sort of suggest, okay, this is how I want you to carry your head, began to be used as a, as a crutch. And so the horse was never learning how to move correctly. They were just being forced to assume something that looked correct. And I think that's what happens a lot with training people as well. Like we, you know, I squat this way because this is how I was taught to squat. And I'm like, but how do your knees feel? And they're like, they hurt really bad. And I'm like, well, you shouldn't squat that way. We need to get you, you know, we might need to like have you push your knees out a little bit further. We need to get your hips back. Maybe you need to wear a weight belt for a little while. Um, but it's the same with, you know, people like the, the weight belt is supposed to train them to engage their core, um, better where some people will just rely on them from warm up to, to the heaviest lift. Whereas we'd, we'd like you to, you know, you're going to use it when you're doing your heaviest lifts to, to protect your spine, but you know, 
we're going to warm up without it until we need it to give us a little bit more support. Yeah, I think it's 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 really cool the the um, the similarities between everything about you know about <laughs> the basics have to work. Years ago, I, I was in New Zealand doing some clinics, and there was a lady in my clinic who was a boxer, an amateur boxer. She had, I think, she'd had twenty fights. She'd won eleven. She'd lost nine. She'd represented New Zealand like seven times as an amateur boxer, and she was going to turn pro. And she had got a new coach to help her turn pro probably three months before the clinic, I think. And I was talking about basics there and she was saying, so she told me the whole story. She said, my new coach has, you know, even though I've, I've had 20 fights, I've won 11 fights, if I want to turn pro, he said, you've got to go back to the beginning. And she said, the only thing I've done for the last three months is the jab. I haven't, wow. I haven't thrown a cross. I haven't, thrown, I haven't worked the heavy bag. I haven't worked the speed bag. I haven't done any footwork. The only thing I've done is work on my jab. He said, because your jab is the first punch you learn to throw and your jab is not good enough to turn pro. You've got to, so it was basically rebuild the whole thing from start. And so, I don't know, a year later, six months, I forget when it was, she had her first pro fight and she won it. And so I messaged nice. her on Facebook and I said, hey, congratulations, that was awesome. I said, how'd it go? She goes, well, she was more experienced than me, but I wore her down with the jab. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and she had a saying that said, basics wins fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it, yeah, basics wins everything. Yeah, it, it's definitely a universal truth. And, you know, again, we need to value that. And until you can get somebody to value that, they won't necessarily do it. But I always keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we had a an intern years ago who was a dancer. She's really big into dancing, salsa dancing, so much so that when she went to college, she chose to go to college in Mexico City so she can immerse herself in the salsa dancing scene. And she told me a dance saying that applies to everything. She said, beginning dancers tend to take intermediate lessons and intermediate dancers tend to take advanced lessons, but advanced dancers take beginning lessons. Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, as an aside, I... I refer to in my book, like, I think if you want to know what strong looks like, look at a dancer and people don't typically think of them as strong, but they are so incredibly strong. Like the way they can just support and move their bodies through, you know, uh, different planes and at elevations. It's, it takes an incredible amount of strength to, to be a dancer and have that beautiful posture and move that fluidly. Like the reason that athletes make things look so effortless is because they're strong and it, and they're coordinated and that's what strength is. Yeah. So I talked about having Ty Murray on the podcast here a while ago. So like I said, he was the, the best rodeo athlete there's ever been sort of thing. They called him the King of the Cowboys. Well, he was on dancing with the stars. And he said it was oh, the really? hardest thing he'd ever done. And he didn't say this on my podcast, but I heard him say it on another podcast. They said, so how, how was it on Dancing with the Stars? And he said, that's the hard, that's, that was the hardest, physically hardest thing I've ever done. He said, every morning when I woke up, I felt like I'd been eaten by a coyote and pooped over a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is an imagine. athlete. Like this guy is an athlete. An amazing yeah. athlete and learning to dance properly just killed him. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I joke that, you know, in the middle of all my 
Highland Games training, you know, I'm throwing logs and heavy weights and I went out to weed my garden and I was like crippled for three days because I just wasn't used to bending over and, and picking weeds up. It was it was remarkable. So tell but, me about yeah. your Highland Highland Games. I mean, I know what Highland Games are because I'm from Australia and every what you would call a county fair, most county fairs in Australia, we call them a agricultural show, but a lot of them, when I was a kid at least, used to have the Highland Games. They'd have the sheaf toss and they'd have the, the caber toss yeah. and they'd have the, what's the, other, what's the big rock they throw? Well, it's uh, Waitford. Well, they have the Braemar Stone, which is basically a shot put. Um, mm. And they have two different two different sizes. And then they have the weights for distance, which is basically a, a weight on a chain that you throw like a discus and you spin yes. with it. And so there's a heavy and the light. And then there's a weight over bar where you throw in the bar on increasing height of a bar so if you make it over you get to go up they'll raise it a foot and you just keep throwing for height until last man standing um and but the yeah, caber toss is throwing a log yeah so um the goal of it is to turn it so you have to first you have to pick it up and that's hard because you got to get it up off the ground get your hands underneath of it and then once you're balanced with it, now you've got to go forward because what you want to be able to do is sort of throw it ahead of you such that the top lands in front of you and then it rotates over. And if it rotates all the way over into what we call the 12 o'clock position, that's perfect. Now it may go slightly to the side. Um, so you can go anywhere from, let's say, uh, a nine o'clock position to a three o'clock position, but 12 o'clock is perfect. And the reason I got into that was because um, I was born with hip dysplasia. I have a couple other things going on with me. I was a breech baby. And so my hips have never been, I wasn't built to lift super heavy weights. I, I think I got up to about intermediate weight and realized I was a much better coach than I was a lifter, but I, I still wanted to compete in something. And a friend of mine did the Highland Games and he said, you would really like this because it's skill-based. And even though you're small, if you can really practice good technique um, and really learn how to manage your center of gravity, you can be really good at this. So I took that very seriously. And I, oh my gosh, I, that's when I finally had to go see a chiropractor because <laughs> if you're holding a 28 pound weight in one hand and turning and trying to throw it, it it'll, it'll pull you out of whack really quickly. Uh, but yeah, I competed in that from... I guess 2011, and then right before COVID hit, I'd competed at the lightweight world championships in uh, where the Queen Mary is parked in California. Um, Long Beach. Yeah, yeah. And I had done Masters Worlds a couple times. But, uh, yeah, I was able to – and, again, that kind of goes with my my philosophy is that if you're willing to learn, you can get far beyond what you are – preconceived notions of your own abilities are. And like I said, I, I was a terrible athlete in high school and I probably uh, scared my gym teacher when I was trying to jump hurdles. But, you know, I, as a 40-year-old, um, I was able to compete in the Highland Games and, and, and do quite well. And it was something that I had to train really hard for, though. I did have to lift a lot because, you know, like I said, the, the forces that are on your body are, are pretty hard. And so technique can certainly make you better, but you really need to be careful to avoid injury. So once COVID hit, um, my, my mother had just passed away. So I, uh, I kind of decided to take a break and just 
get back to walking. At that point, um, I'd been competing for nine years, and my elbows and my knees were kind of talking to me. And I decided, you know what, I want to, I want to get back to horseback riding, and I, I want to be able to hike a mountain with my grandkids. And if I keep doing this, I'm going to have some pretty bad arthritis and some other things. And it, it was a lot of fun, but I was like, I think it's time time to hang up my kilt for a while. <laughs> but time to it hang was, up your. Hey, yeah, tell me, how heavy is, how heavy and how long is the, the log that you toss in the caber toss? So for the women, um, I think the tallest one I ever had to pick up was about 18 feet tall and probably was about 80 or 90 pounds. And the thing that's really difficult about it is um, the top is heavier than the bottom. So you mm. actually lift, lift up the narrow bottom uh, because that helps it turn. If you had to do it the other way around, right. it wouldn't necessarily turn. Now, the men's cabers, I think, can be as long as 20, 22 feet, and they might be closer to like 120, 150 pounds. Um, but it is, yeah, you're, and basically when you pick it up, you've got only about 18 to 24 inches because um, you're holding it. You've got both your hands underneath of it, and you're holding it at about your belly button. And all the rest of that length is above your head. And so talk about core strength. And then you've got to run with it. And, uh, you know, just hope you don't slip and fall. I, I did that one time. They had the sheepdogs on the field doing the sheep herding. And um, sheep poop is very slippery. <laughs> and I went to go throw it. And my feet went right out from under me. And I, I was thought I was about to die. But thankfully, it, it landed uh, a little bit behind me. <laughs> but, yeah, that's yeah, a... That's a a lot of fun. Sheep poop is like ball bearings. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get to some of your questions here that you chose. Um, what have you changed in the past five years that helped shape who you have become? I started to be a little bit more selfish, and I call it selfish, but I was really for a long time kind of putting out a lot to a lot of different people. If somebody came and wanted help me to help them, I, of course I would. And I was always coaching, even though I had my own training practice, like I coached my kids cross country team at the middle school. I, I got pulled into coaching the lacrosse team. I don't know anything about lacrosse, but I can make little boys do drills. So that's what I did. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but I, it got to the point where I had taken on so much that I, I was really kind of getting burned out and it, I just didn't feel centered. And I also didn't feel like I was producing, you know, the kind of quality work that I wanted to. I, I write textbooks and I also teach some college classes online. And I really, like I said, I really wanted to get back into writing. And I had always, I had stopped riding horses in college because I just didn't have, I didn't have access to them. Um, I lived in the city. I didn't have the money. I didn't have the land. And I, it was something that I always really, really regretted um, losing in my life just because I, I, one of my favorite things to do is to go out in, on a trail and just be out with the horse or, you know, take my dogs out on a trail. But uh, so I finally, what actually changed it for me was I adopted a dog who was completely neurotic and she needed me to be around her all the time. And I had to walk her literally like three to six miles a day because if I didn't, she'd like lose her mind. And she kind of forced me to spend more time at home. And 
And because of that, I started saying no to things. And I realized I, I kind of like this. This is making me happy. And then um, one of my weightlifters that I had trained from the time she was 12, she actually became a, a competitive mounted shooter. So she does the thing where they run around okay. with barrels yeah. and shoot stuff. And she had a retired mare that she still wanted exercise. And I was like, can I can I ride her? And she was like, yes. So I, me and this mayor used to just go out in the woods and, and spend time together. And I, I think doing that allowed me to have that time, either walking my dog in the woods or going for a trail ride on the horse. I have a tendency to be very much in my head. And if I don't have time to decompress, um, nothing comes out of it. It's just like a beehive in there. And having that time to just think and reflect, I was actually able to produce much better quality work, get back to doing some freelance writing. I, I wrote a textbook for a European training organization, and I'd still get people trying to rope me into <laughs> helping them, but I have this very good friend, Didi, and she is she's an old soul. I say that because she's like 15 years younger than me, but gives me really good advice, and she, I had a couple of trainees who were very demanding um, of my time and were constantly, and they were very flattering to me. They were always like, you know, always saying nice things about me and to me. And, but I always felt like I had to stop everything I was doing and help them out whenever they ran into an issue or when they wanted to, oh, I want to train for this competition or I want to do this or teach, tell me how to cut weight because I'm, I'm overweight for this competition. And my friend Didi said, Sarah, there are givers and takers in this world, and it's fine to say thank you, but if people are not giving you anything back, you need to cut them off. And one of those people was what we would call a taker. And when I finally sat back and looked at the relationship I had with her, there it was a complete one-way street. And and I it kind of changed my perspective on things, because as much as I... I want to take care of people. I want to help people out. I want to, you know, be compassionate and all that. Sometimes we don't realize that we're not getting anything in return. And not that I think relationships need to be transactional, but if someone is just constantly emptying your cup and not doing anything to fill it back up, I think it's really important to just move on and go. You know, it's interesting that that's what you've changed. That's the question you chose. What have you changed in the last five years that's helped shape you become? But then the next question, you chose almost the same <laughs> question because this other question is, in the past five years, what have you become better at saying no to? And it's such an interesting question because I think we're raised to, to believe that doing things for other people is good and not really thinking about whether that's good for you and it's 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 a great question in in this context because this podcast is about people sharing their stories and maybe inspiring others to look at things a bit differently and when people choose this question in the past five years what have you become better at saying no to it's it's posing saying no to things as a good thing instead of it being a bad thing you know what i mean yeah, and I, I think it's important because, you know, especially when I realized, like, I only have so much to give, and 
when I'm mentally drained and mentally exhausted, I can't be there for my family. I can't be there for my neurotic dog, <laughs> but I can't be there for myself. And, you know, I, I think we often lose sight of the fact that, you know, the meaning of life essentially is to enjoy your life. And if you're not enjoying it because you're spending all your time taking care of others, you know, that it, it'll start to beat you down after a while. And I think that we need to make that space for our own enjoyment and our own, you know, nurturing ourselves. Yeah, and uh, it's probably different for everybody, but for me, coming to understand why I would be doing things like that, why I'd be making myself available to other people all the time, and then, yeah, then you start to realize there's some things going on there that oh, I need to work on that on for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the thing that, like with my trainees, is I want them to become more independent. I want them to learn. And I eventually, you know, want them to get better than me. I celebrate when someone moves past my skill level or my, you know, strength level. I think it's wonderful. And... I think sometimes there's, with some of my, the people I've taught over the years, there's sort of like this competition thing that they want to, you know, come in and, and, and learn and turn around and, and, you know, do their own thing as if I would find that offensive. I Mm. don't, you know, because I think as a teacher and a, a leader and a, you know, a person, I think it's our job to eventually have our students outgrow us. I mean, I think that's how it should be you know, or maybe come back and teach us something. Uh, yeah, I, I totally, I'm totally down with that. I think that is, you know, you, you, you kind of give them the step up to the next step of the way, but they, they keep going with it. Yeah. Okay, next question for you is, what quality do you admire in a person? Honestly, I, <laughs> I'm i always really impressed when I find people who are truly compassionate. And um, what I mean by that is not that they love everybody or not that they even like everybody, but they can see a three-dimensional person when they are talking about or to another person uh, I've often seen, and again, this comes first from sort of like my coaching experience. There's, there can be a lot of, you know, when you interact with people briefly or, or in only certain situations, it's easy to kind of pigeonhole them and their issues, um, and say, oh yeah, that person's, <laughs> that person's crazy or that person's very unhappy or I don't like that. She's not nice. And when I've seen. I've been talking when I talk to people and and they can point out someone who maybe I've had an issue with and they can say, well, you know, yeah, she, she's definitely can be different, but uh, she also, you know, does this, you know, does these other things. She volunteers at a a senior citizen home. Her mother's uh, terminally ill. She has this other thing. And it's not to say, forgive them for being a jerk. It's usually just, you know, there's more to her than just this attitude she's giving you. And there's no judgment and there's no emotion about it. And I feel like if more of us could be 
that open, um, willing to just kind of accept people for who they are and even still try and learn about them, um, I, I think we, we get along a lot better. And it's easier to let some ugly behavior slide and not have it affect you personally. Because I have seen over the years, especially coaching middle schoolers, um, the emotional impact that others can have on you can be incredibly destructive. So if you can find a way to objectively interact with others and still be kind, even when maybe they aren't, I think that's a really tremendous skill that not a lot of us have. Yeah, I think it's a skill and I think it's something that you, I think when, as you do work on yourself, you become better at that because you, you, I, at least for me personally, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, working on me, you become aware that the way you show up in the world has a lot to do with things that have happened in your past. And as you work through them, you show up differently. And it's I think you get to understand that if somebody's being, quote, unquote, a jerk, it's probably nothing to do with what's going on right now and something, some unresolved stuff they've got somewhere and it's and you also come to realize it's not about you it's 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 not personal and i think that's i think that's when you can kind of have grace in those situations but i think it's our egos that make us think that it's personal and it's about us whereas really that's just our projecting our shit on them projecting their shit so to speak yeah yeah exactly it's, it's it's i think i think it's i think it's um Yeah, I, I think having the ability to do that really has a lot to do with understanding where your own stuff comes from so you can understand where other people's stuff comes from. Yeah, and I think it, it actually diminishes diminishes the amount of drama that you have to encounter. Um, and uh, it just it just makes things easier to be around. So when there's somebody that can just naturally just you know, embrace everybody for who they are and, and not, not care about, <laughs> it doesn't need to go further than that. Like we're all in a room together. Let's, let's do the work that we need to do. And we're not going to worry about the fact that, you know, he's in a bad mood or she talks too loud or any of that other stuff. It's <laughs> just, here we are. <laughs> yeah. I, I love being around people that, that have that ability to do that. And I think those kinds of people have done the work on themselves and, and, uh, come out the other side of it and yeah they're pretty inspirational uh next question for you good question everybody asks asks for this question what is your relationship like with fear <sighs> okay so um i'm actually a very anxious person <laughs> i'm scared of a lot of things um i actually didn't ride for a long time because when i was younger i um I was good with green horses. So my trainer kept putting me on increasingly dangerous horses to mm. the point that I got hurt a lot, um, pretty badly. And I, I didn't trust, I started to not trust him. And I started to get to the point where I couldn't communicate with the horse anymore because I was too afraid. I was too, and I just couldn't mesh with it. And so, and the unfortunate thing is when I came back to riding as an adult, I went to a couple of different places where I, um, 
would start riding and they'd realize I was experienced. So what would they do? They'd put me on their problem horse and it would all start over again. And so, um, you know, actually being able to get back out on that little mare and just trail ride was really, really good for my brain. And the, so the solution that I'm, I'm getting at is I know I can get past my fear. And the way that I get past my fear is I know I, there's something I need to learn about it. So when I first started doing Highland games, the whole idea of it just scared the hell out of me. Um, it, not just the, the physical acts, but like being up in front of an audience, being in, up in front of a crowd, I would get performance anxiety because it's not like going and picking up a deadlift off a platform. You're, you know, like I said, you're spinning in a tiny box with a heavy weight. And, you know, if you hit the board in the front, you're going to go sprawling and possibly hurt yourself really badly. And when you're picking up a 18 foot long log that could possibly, you know, fall and dislocate your shoulder, that's, that's really scary as well. So, you know, we go back to that concept of practice and planning. And so, you know, we learn how to do the skills and then we gradually increase the intensity at which we do it so that by the time we have to confront it, we've already done it a bunch of times. So yes, there, there may still be some residual anxiety, but I find that the best way to deal with known fears, um, like that I'm go I know I'm going to encounter is to make a plan, you know, figure out as many things as I possibly can, try and mitigate what I can in advance by planning or practice. And then just sometimes you just got to hold on and, and let it, <laughs> let the, whatever's going to happen, happen. Cause you're not going to be able to change it. You know, when my babies were really little, I used to be terrified that, um, you know, the, there would be a car accident or there would be a, a fire or something was going to happen to them. And I had this friend, Marion, who was uh, very religious, and she said, honey, you got to just give it up to God, <laughs> put it in God's hands. And and I I took that to mean, you know what, I can't change it. Those things might happen. But I can't, what I have to realize is that if or when something happened like that, I would have a lot of support around me. I know that I, I know that I have that. So I, the way I actually deal with fear is I'd confront it on a regular basis. I'm either planning for it, practicing for it, or, uh, dealing with the fact that things happen that you can't do anything about. Um, when, uh, I was, helping a, a friend of mine just last August, he was an 85 year old horse breeder, had a terrible accident. And I ended up having to jump in and take care of his 26 horses and rehome them. And my biggest fear was that many of them were elderly and a lot of them had health problems. And I was so afraid I was going to have to have them put down. And it, it was heartbreaking. Uh, thankfully we didn't, but, um, so my only way of dealing with that was information. I just, I talked to as many people as I could. I, I got the vet to come out and evaluate them. I was, I was able to reach out and find some very, very compassionate, kind people who knew how to deal with these problems. And they're like, this is not a put downable um, illness. You know, we can fix this. They just need time. And, um, but in the meantime, I had prepared myself that this, this might be a, a real thing that has to has to happen. I had two old mares that were kind of 
bonded because one was blind and the other one was her seeing eye horse. And, um, but thankfully I, I found an incredible person who took both of them. But, um, yeah, it was, I think the, the way I dealt with that fear was I had a really long talk with the farm owner's wife and she said, Sarah, they, the, they're not going to know what's happening. You're, you're going to know, and it's going to break your heart. But you know, the, the flip side is them going somewhere where they are afraid and they're not being taken care of. And so if the safer, kinder alternative is to have them put down on the farm, they've always known, then that, that's a good thing. And I really had to wrap my head around that and be brave about accepting that. And like I said, thank God I didn't have to choose that for any of them, but it was, it was a haunting concept for several weeks. Yeah, that's a tough, tough decision to have to make. Um, yeah, and then it's made tougher by the fact that this is the best thing for them and, and they won't know and it'll be, yeah, that's that's a tough one. I certainly don't want to face that one. Um, next and last question, what what do you think it means to be a leader and a follower? Um, so I don't know. I was watching GI Joe when I was little and there was an episode where Cobra decided to infiltrate GI Joe and they changed orders and they put three people in, in leadership positions that should not have been in leadership positions. And it caused all kinds of chaos. And at the end, I think the, the general or captain, I don't even remember what the structure was. He said, you know, well, Guy number one had the desire to be a leader, but not the ability. Guy number two had the ability to be a leader, but not the desire. And guy number three, he didn't have either. So, and that's why it didn't work because, you know, I, and I, I always think about that because it's, you know, leadership when we were little used to think, we used to mean like, well, this guy's going to tell us what to do. So we used to, you know, a lot of us tend to think of a leader as someone who's just kind of bossy or charismatic and, and that can certainly be true, but what I've found is when, to me, leading is teaching and leading is, like I said earlier, when when you're leading people, I think the goal is to take them somewhere, take them on a journey, take them somewhere new. And the length of that journey can be very short. Like for some, it can simply be pointing you in a, a new direction that you didn't know that you should take. Sometimes it's taking you in that new direction and holding your hand along the way. Sometimes it's taking you in that new direction and handing off the torch and say, it's time for you to, you know, carry this and, and, and lead others. But like I said, whenever I've been coaching or training others, my goal is for them to eventually not need me anymore. And the funny thing is, is that even though that's my goal, it rarely happened because they, they enjoyed, you know, learning and, and continually learning from me. But, you know, eventually, and we'll get into the follower thing, is um, I think the follower's job is, is to do the work until they, until they don't need to be led anymore. And I would ideally like to see, especially with my trainees, I like to see them eventually learn enough that they can lead themselves. 
Um, I think sometimes followers can be too blind and too dependent on the leader, and I don't think that's useful for either the leader or the follower. And, you know, on the other hand, sometimes I've had people who just challenge me all the time um, to the point that I'm (laughs) like, get out of my gym, (laughs) you know, I'm just kind of annoyed. Like, yeah, I know you saw that on TikTok, but it's BS, and I I don't even want to talk to you about that because it's not worth my time. Um, So, you know, it's kind of like, I have something to teach you. Do you want to come sit at my feet and learn for a while? That's awesome. And maybe one day you'll get up and and have your own ideas you want to share or teach this to somebody else. But that's that's how I like to see it. Are you familiar with the concept of shuhari? I don't think so. Well, you just basically you just talked about it. I think it's a oh, it's a, <laughs> it's a I can't remember if it's Chinese or Japanese, but it's it's basically I tell you what, Sir Richard Branson puts it better. Uh, he says in order to break the rules. First, you need to learn the rules. And so shuhari is basically first you devote yourself to the teacher and you do exactly what they say until you completely understand that. Then the next thing is you get to start to play with a little bit and work with the subtleties or whatever, and then eventually you make up your own stuff. It's, it's kind of like, so you've got, you know, like I really like Sir Richard Branson's way he puts it, and he probably stole it from somewhere else, but <laughs> first you need to learn the rules before you can break the rules. You know, or in order to break the rules, first you need to learn the rules. And so first the person needs to come, you know, if, if I came to you, I know nothing about anything you teach. I should not be trying to listen to you plus the guy on TikTok, plus the thing I saw on YouTube, plus the something else. I should just, okay, I'm going to do exactly what you said and the way you said it. And at some point in time, I get to where I totally understand everything you know, and then I can go play with it a little bit. And at the start of that, you're talking about leadership. And I recently had the opportunity to be a bit of a mentor to someone, a horse person, and it wasn't all smooth sailing for either of us. But in the end, this person sent me a, a meme. It's a, it's a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt which said a good leader inspires people to have confidence in the leader. A great leader inspires people to have confidence in themselves. And during our interactions for a while there, I thought that I, I think I thought that they thought that I didn't care and that that not caring was actually letting them kind of figure stuff out for themselves. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to that. And I think it, I think as you grow, it it, it probably changes all the time. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think, you know, when we're younger, we tend to invest a lot more thought into how people feel about us, and and we want our leadership to be kind of a a boost to our ego, you know. They're Mm. following me because I'm right and I know everything, and... um, But, again, some of the most impressive coaches I've ever seen are constantly asking questions they're continuing their own you know education journey and sharing that you know with their trainees or followers everything else and i i think that that is true leadership because again you're taking someone on a journey and you know 
just because you're in front doesn't mean you exactly know where you're going. But, you know, if they're still willing to follow you, come along and we'll we'll figure this out. Because I have, you know, at the very least, I have a philosophy that I'm going to apply to the new things that we encounter. And hopefully we'll, we'll learn together. And I think that's a really... I think that's a really useful way to look at it. Right. Um, okay, so how can people find out more about you and what you do? <laughs> um, I have a blog, which I've written tons of articles for over the years. It's um, www.havefun-getstrong.com. Um, and I am on Instagram as have fun, get strong. Although most of the things you'll see on there now are photos of my dogs. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> my I was looking at it earlier. It's like a lot of dogs on there. <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, my book fitness without fear is on Amazon. Um, you can get, there's an audio book. It's like two ninety nine. I'm not audio book. I'm sorry. Kindle format, two ninety nine. Kindle format. And then, yeah. And then it, it's also a paperback. Um, but if you do get the book, I strongly advise you to, um, you know, read through the first four chapters um, before you get to the, from chapter five on is sort of more practical stuff, but, you know, the the more conceptual things. And, and I the first four chapters I wrote specifically to help people to start to value this lower intensity work and the postural work, because that's what I think is really important. And if you can sort of, you know, change your mindset to really value those things, you can really improve your quality of life without doing much hardly at all. <laughs> and, you know, and then the, the rest of the book kind of has some, just some practical, you know, real time, what to do in the gym. But again, I keep things very simple. Everything that I teach is, is very postural based and movement based. And, um, you know, the, the simpler, the better, like we, we shouldn't spend our lives in the gym. Um, the gym, like I said, exercises medicine. It should help improve our quality of life. If all you do is work out hard and are sore from your workouts, that's that's not the way to live. You need to be, you know, spending time with your family and friends and eating pie and going for walks with your dog and, you know, enjoying your life. Like that's that's the meaning of life. <laughs> I like that. That's really good. So uh, just to recap, the the book is called Fitness Without Fear: A Practical Guide to Improving Your Life through good movement. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a pleasure listening to you talk about all this stuff because it's all the... Oh, thank you. Pretty amazing. It all lines up with all the stuff that I've been talking about lately with different guests on the podcast about, you know, us living the way we're supposed to live instead of the way that society's kind of led us to live. Yeah. No, I... Well, I will nerd out on this stuff all day, so I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> No, it's great. So it's thank you so much. It's been a bit of a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast. And for you guys at home, uh, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll catch you on the next episode of The Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of The Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.